Hello and welcome to the Sala podcast. This episode is going to be a bit different from our usual fare as it takes the form of an audio tour. You are welcome to treat this the same as any other episode, but you are also welcome to do the tour yourself. All of the stops on this tour are in Adelaide's free tram zone and you can see a list of them on the Sala Festival website. We will be hearing from three speakers, Jacinta Coolmetry, Troy Anthony Bayless and Makita Jung. And between them, they will speak to existing monuments and new work. Hi, my name is Jacinta Kumutri and I'm an Adimana Ngadadjeri person. My Adimana ancestors come from the rocky land of the Flinders Ranges. It's about five hours north of Adelaide. While my Ngadadjeri ancestors come from the Korong. It's about two hours south of Adelaide. But today I'm reading this from Ghana land, and I imagine if you're physically going to the places I'm talking about today, you too are on Ghana land. With me, I hope you join in acknowledging Ghana people's continued relationship to this land. Today I'm going to be talking about statues and where they are placed in relation to their surroundings. Statues often are incredibly normalized. We see them regularly enough that we don't really consider what the person did. We often look at them and assume that they must have been memorialized because they were important. But what does it mean to be important? In whose eyes were these people important? That's something I want to explore today. So please, if you can, meet me in the centre of the city in Tantanyanga, Victoria Square. Here is where I'll be talking about one statue in particular. Otherwise, you can just continue to listen and imagine that you're there. Standing directly in the middle of Dandanyanga and facing north, you will notice that there is a statue to your right. It's slightly huddled into a corner, shut up by trees and the nearby toilet block. To the traffic rushing by, that's me on a weekday. I pass by here after work, often being stopped by the traffic lights, making me reflect on the statue nearly every day. Looking back at the towering statue, it was of a man named Charles Cameron Kingston. He was a lawyer and politician and was most active in Adelaide around the late 1800s. He played a large role in the creation of this city. In Adelaide, he was the Attorney General for a number of years and he was also the Premier between 1893 to 1899. During this time, he did what many people praise him for. He made South Australian women the first in the world to have the right to vote and to stand for Parliament. He was also influential in Australia as a whole, as he supported the Federation of the Colonies, contributed to the drafting of the Australian Constitution, and he was the first Minister for Trade and Customs. He was also a massive advocate for the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901. His presence around Adelaide wasn't only political, his behaviour was also quite humorous. 
Richard Baker, who was a well-known conservative member of the Legislative Council, called him a coward and a bully, stating that he was a disgrace to the legal profession. As you can imagine, this didn't go down well with Kingston. He replied to Baker, saying that he was false as a friend, treacherous as a colleague, mendacious as a man, and utterly untrustworthy in every relationship of public life. He then sent Baker a letter, along with a pistol, challenging him to a duel right in the place where his statue is standing today. It didn't turn out well for Kingston, though. Baker informed the police and arrested Kingston not too long after he arrived with his loaded revolver. He was tried and forced to keep the peace for 12 months because of this, and his sentence was still in place in June 1893, the month he became Premier. He must have had a thing for the square because in 1895 he was whipped by the Adelaide manager of the South Australian Co, causing him to bleed. And he later told the press, Who can now say that I have not shed my blood for South Australia? What a pity, my capitalistic friends will say, that there was not more of it. Kingston died in 1908, and not too long after he died, a group of people, mostly his friends, sought to erect a statue of him. It was finally unveiled in 1916. At the time, his statue was important because he was viewed as a patriot and someone who truly contributed to creating a nation and to the state politics. So I return to my question of what does it mean to be important? especially when it comes to people from different cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds. Kingston was without a doubt influential in South Australia's early politics. But he was also your average coloniser. Every action to form a nation over the top of Aboriginal lands will always make you a coloniser. But he was also incredibly outright racist. He was horrendously against Chinese immigration and fully advocated for the Immigration Restriction Act 1901, known more widely today as the White Australia Policy. This policy has had such an influence in how Australia is shaped today. It literally whitened Australia. I would like to say that times have changed, that people like Kingston no longer exist. But we only have to look at the way racism prospers in Australia to know that his impact has been long-lasting. It is probably the reason why his statue remains here. If you shift your eyes to behind you, you'll see that there's a roadway which splits the square in half. Although it's not really a square, the place that you're standing on is actually in the shape of a garnet shield. 
and the road that crosses through it is known as Reconciliation Plaza. If you look up, you'll see the Aboriginal flag, larger than life, flying high in the sky. And yet here stands Kingston statue, seemingly out of place. How can someone who caused such negative impacts towards people who weren't white stand amongst such large representations of Aboriginal people and culture? Of all of these, Kingston statue stood here first. Over time, the defined shape of the shield, the plaza and the flag were introduced making Kingston statue much less prominent. Kingston isn't the only statue that is in this area. Directly in the middle you see Queen Victoria. To the northwest, Charles Sturt, and to the northeast stands John McDougall Stuart. Each representing colonialism in their own ways. Each sending a message to the world that these people are important. I think people find it easier to add memorials and representations of Aboriginal culture rather than remove statues and memorials that were dedicated to the creation of Australia. It's harder to look at your past or the people who you've always looked up to and finally see that they aren't the great founders of this land you begin to see them as invaders and Australia has never really sat well with the idea that they invaded Aboriginal lands. So I want to ask you a question. Do you want to be associated with people like Kingston? Because statues like his serve to be a representation of the city and the people who live in it. If you are a visitor to this place, how does it make you feel to know that someone like him has been given such recognition. Does it change your perspective on Adelaide? Look around you or think about where you live. What's memorialized? Who's memorialized? Does it represent you? Does it represent Aboriginal people like me and people from backgrounds that aren't the same as yours? Imagine that these statues no longer exist. Does it make the space more welcoming? Because I imagine it probably does. Thanks for listening. I hope this has inspired you to think more critically about what's celebrated in the place that you live. For our next stop, we will head to the Art Gallery of South Australia, where we will hear from Troy Anthony Bayliss, who self-describes as a queer Aboriginal artist, descendant from the Jawan people of the Northern Territory.
Troy Anthony, the first thing that people see when they enter the Art Gallery of South Australia at the moment is your work. Would you be able to tell us what it's about? Sure. Um, there's three bodies of, of work within the exhibition. Um, one of them is is some work I'm already kind of fairly well known for because um, the work, most of the episodes of the series Postcard showed in the National last year um, at Carriage Works in Sydney. And there's one new addition to the Postcard Works um, in this show. So it's, it's debuting for the... You know, sort of, world premiere here in Adelaide at Sala. The postcard series references the uh, king plates or um, Aboriginal breastplates that were given to Aboriginal people by Governor Macquarie and also further governors. And it was kind of a way to identify uh, Native men in particular with, um, with power and authority so that there could be a, a conduit between the colonial rulers and the Aboriginal people. And sometimes those badges of distinction, which are also a bit like brands really, were accepted by some communities and then in other times they were rejected. And sometimes they also identified really the wrong person within the community. So there's a real mixed message there. And in a sense, my work kind of reclaims that, even that, that language or that process by kind of making these these large breastplates, which they're, they're really huge, into being like um, queen plates for dialogue, like like huge pieces of jewellery for Aboriginal drag queens and places to kind of um, exchange to one another. So it's kind of, um, yeah, so, so they're super festive, but they really kind of take on a, a troubled and problematic history and artefacts that are that have resulted from that, that time of history and in a sense kind of re, yeah, kind of totally repurposed the concept and reclaimed the concept. So, yeah, I suppose there is certainly, with that body of work alone, there is some overlap to these themes. One of the new series' work created specifically part of the Guildhouse Fellowship and for this exhibition are called Nomenclature. So the Nomenclature works, there's eight of them, and there are six of those works are from South Australian place names that were named in German, after German people, and in 1917, there was the Nomenclature Act, which was basically, you know, it was a, a time of uh, end of the World War I. Um, and, you know, obviously there was, there was a time of anti-German sentiment. And so a lot of those places, actually all of those places, their names changed to non-German places. So, you know, an example um, would be Lobethal and Blumberg and Birdwood. So Birdwood was Blumberg, and then it, it changed to Birdwood. And then in some instances, there was another Nomenclature Act of 1935, and that reinstated some of those places. And one of the really kind of exciting things, almost an inappropriate word to, to use, but um, in some cases, the new name also sounded German too, or did actually come from German origin. It just wasn't named after a German person. So one example would be the Adelaide suburb of Klemzig, which was changed to Gaza and then reinstated as Klemzig in the 1935 Act. So, you know, um, yeah, so Gaza was named after somebody who wasn't German, but of course the origin of that, long, of that name is German. So it's a very, in, in a way, it, it kind of, I suppose, even speaks quite currently now to this very, very complex terrain 
about how to reconcile the, um, you know, the issues of historical acknowledgements that are at least, you know, for many decades in some instances have been kind of celebrated and these, you know, through monuments that are of celebration. And there is also another layer to that work, isn't there? Oh, yes. So, so with that, those same nomenclature works, I have done separate paintings of those two names for that place. And you also have to remember that the naming of something is a synthetic act. You know, it's not natural, it's synthetic. You know, that's what we do as, as people, we name things. And so I did a painting of each of those place names and one has been cut in long strips and one in short strips. And then I've woven, literally woven them back together. So that, you know, if you think of, of weaving practices, you literally have a warp and a weft. And then, you know, these landscapes kind of hold this tension. So it's, it's, it's kind of, in a sense, the tension is, is held within the one place, one time. And then over the top of that, um, I've embroidered the Aboriginal language group who are the traditional owners of those places. So it's actually meshed three names together, all in some sort of relationship. I'm hoping sort of harmoniously, but it's certainly, um, you know, it, it's abstract. And yeah, so that's those works. There is one final body of work as well. Uh, they're called Tell Them They're Dreaming. And the, the works are all on rainbow coloured paper and they're die cast text of songs from pop songs, dreaming pop songs. So, you know, um, Master's Apprentices, you know, living in a child's dream to um, I was dreaming when I wrote this prince. Um, <laughs> these are the dreams of the possible princess, Kylie Minogue, et cetera, et cetera. And it came from the idea of when I was in Germany, I guess this is, I was trying to describe what the dreaming was to somebody. I guess it's something I've always known, but I mean, it's so, so difficult to translate as a concept. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's obviously super great that people really want to know things and they want to understand yeah. different voices and perspectives. And, you know, that's what we do in the arts, you know, mm. for one. But some things don't necessarily translate very well or can't really be translated. And that's kind of okay too. So, you know, so with the dreaming, it varies across all different Aboriginal groups. And sometimes even within the same Aboriginal group or, or, or nation, there's differences too, because it's also a spirituality and a spiritual connection and spiritual connections are different for different mm. people. So playing on that, riffing on that line in the castle, I'll tell him he's dreaming. This is tell them they're dreaming. So I'm kind of, you know, using that popular, um, uh, those popular ideas and pop to, for people to be able to access and have fun with that idea without actually hitting them in the face and said, no, you don't, you, it's none of your business. It's a way to kind of, you know, allow people access and to have fun with it and to bring up that question. Mm. Um, yeah. And I, I, I put that work into play with a um, really, really wonderful work from 1994 by one of my favorite Australian artists, uh, David McDermott and the David McDermott foundation kindly uh, lent me the work and it's called, when I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And I love that work because if you changed opinion to when I want your culture, I'll give it to you. When I want your language, I'll give it to you. When I want mm. your dream, I'll give it to you. So it's just, it's, it plays on all of these levels. And um, yeah, it, the, the, the rear of the gallery, there's a near the, near the cafe at the, uh, yeah, the atrium? area. Atrium. That's, that's it. it. <laughs> yes. But no birds in it. No birds in it. But yes, the atrium. Maybe it's got this rare bird. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think you've already touched on this a little bit, but can you speak a little bit more about what you see your role as an artist being in, I mean, apart from the obvious, you know, you're creating, but your role in these conversations? I think it's to ask, I think my, my role in, in, as an artist, certainly with this subject matter, is to kind of ask questions, more like it, or put questions out there through the poetry of practice. I think because it's not very quick to make, and this goes for a lot of artists' work, really, even really quick work. It's not, it's at least you're doing something before you're putting something out on Facebook. You actually have to think these things through when you're making something, but it forces you to take some time out. Because I think a lot of times is we, um, we, you know, as people, especially in social media, and we can just put our thoughts out there straight away. And I guess echoing the diversity of people and the rich tapestry of our communities is, um, is you know, we sometimes just go, for it straight away and sometimes we don't really get the release for that that we kind of think we we may get because Mm. we turns out that we haven't quite got the whole story Mm. or and then it's published and somebody's read it and it often creates more distress for people I think sometimes sometimes not you know and again this is about diversity yeah so for me that the art is actually about you know thinking things through putting it out there and not pointing fingers at people or pointing the bone, so to speak. It's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to kind of have people respectfully kind of on the same page and valuing different positions, no matter where they come from. Some people have loads of education in particular areas and some people don't. And even sometimes people who are really educated in some in areas aren't necessarily, you know, there might be holes or issues with what they're saying too. So it's about bringing people along for the journey and I suppose I kind of I think I've developed that skill from a number of reasons probably because of my own diverse background and uh, seeing ways that society was treating different parts of my I mean, a multi- multiplicity of identities and not kind of being comfortable with that and I just kind of learned the idea about forgiveness and realizing that if somebody doesn't get the language right you should never discount them because they might actually be on your side. And, I th- and I've also learned that if you kind of, if it feels like they're being attacked or if people feel like they're being attacked, there's very little chance they're gonna even have a conversation with you, let alone mm. become on the same page. And um, yeah, and I also used to be the executive officer for Reconciliation South Australia. So I kind of, you know, it was also my job to actually bring people along no matter where they were coming mm. from. Yeah, so I'm very much about, yeah, not making people feel guilty and trying to make, yeah, I, you know, I still have positions on things, but I, I'm, I'm never, ever, ever aggressive because I don't want to replicate the violence. Mm. I think that's really important. It's the same with, you know, being an artist. I, I'm very mindful about, and a researcher, I don't want to colonise spaces. Mm. So I can be in a space, sometimes just simply make camp in the space and allow for others to come in. And I think, you know, that the, the more people are in these spaces, the more interesting it becomes. It's the same with, you know, with being an artist. I mean, you know, like, um, you know, when, when you see overlap in other people's works, it's fabulous. Especially, certainly as a curator, because you can put these things together and draw relationships between things. And I think, you know, it builds community. You know, because if you, I think if you kind of think, oh, well, I'm, I'm this unique creation and no one's doing anything like it at all. And you can, you know, you soon find out that, that you've cut off relationships with other things. And, and then it's like that whole dream of being unique is really quite true because you don't mm. get included in anything. Fantastic. 
I'm a bit wordless. <laughs> um... <laughs> Sorry, it's, I'm like one of those those little um, wind up battery animals where you pull the string and it yap 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 yaps until, <laughs> until, until, the, until the battery uh, runs out. I apologise no. for that. No, like, brilliant. I would hardly from last night's opening. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't call that yapping. That was incredibly insightful. And I'm, I'm so uh, grateful that I've been able to ask you these questions. There's also a catalogue online produced for the show with a fantastic essay by um, Daniel Muddy Cunningham, who's the um, program uh, director of CarriageWorks in Sydney, who also curated you know, uh, me, my work, not me into the national, my work into the national last year. Um, fantastic essay. So it's free. Um, the catalogue, you can download it. There's some of these issues are also within, um, articulated very well within the catalogue essay. So, um, yeah, you can go up and download that. I think there's some video stuff there. Wonderful. We'll put a link in our show notes. Thank you so much, Troy Anthony, for speaking to us about your work. We're going to have to move on to our next stop, which is Nexus Arts. I'm here with South Australian artist Makita Jung to talk about her sculptural and textile practice. To start off, can you talk about what inspires your work? Uh, okay, so the very first work I made uh, was actually about, uh, I was researching uh, the history of embroidery and homecraft textiles practices um, in the Western world from around about the 16th century. And embroidery was actually associated with like a stereotype of a really like um, meek submissive housewife type and uh, the first work I ever made was definitely reflective on that. Um, so a lot of my works previously have really built on that focus on gender and how we sort of categorize, would categorize women into stereotypes. But lately my work has become really, really personal. Uh, and it was personal back then, but I think lately I've just come to realise that I'll, I make a lot of work whenever I'm experiencing uh, like a personal difficulty or a crisis. Um, so, yeah, a lot of my recent works have definitely stemmed from that. Um, so there's a focus on uh, mental health and um, race at the moment. So, uh, yeah, that's basically what my work is about. One of the works of yours that's caught my eye is the mixed race sweater. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, what that's about. All right. So um, it's basically a knitted sweater. Um, the technique is actually intarsia. So um, that's where you knit color work in through. And so it's got knitted text all over the front, all over the back, along the sleeves as well. One of the things I've said previously about this work is that, uh, yeah, I was uh, born with one of them on and I can never take it off um, because everywhere I go I often get questions about uh, my like appearance. Um, I get a lot of where are you from and oh what's your background and what's your cultural heritage and I just thought it would be interesting to um, collect them and I decided to knit them into uh, into like a sweater um, with text all over it and the front is in the colours of the Australian flag because my mum is Australian and the back is in the colours of the South Vietnamese flag. Uh, my dad is Vietnamese. 
And um, yeah, it's it's been it's been really interesting um, work to make uh, because on the surface of it, it's it's an interesting asking the question of like if someone wants to ask me where I'm from, like I mean I was born in Adelaide, um, but I think what I wanted to make people think about is to think about the larger reasons why we ask in these questions and you know people who ask me that question I want to say to them oh you know like where are you from especially since Australia is such a mixed bag and we have that colonial kind of white settler history um, you know how many of us who live here are from here from you know say hundreds of or thousands of years ago you know the history of this country is up to up to 80,000 years of Indigenous civilization. Um, so, yeah, like that's going a bit more into, into detail and my thoughts behind it. Um, and there's also a bit of a bit more, there's some other deeper feelings behind it because my father, he when he was a child, he survived the Vietnam War. And so he has different, he has a different kind of attitude to this country um, he, when he travelled here, um, he saw it, I think he definitely sees it as like a place of hope and of opportunity where he was able to start again after witnessing and, yeah, experiencing some um, some pretty difficult things. Um, and, yeah, the, the kind of feeling that national, that kind of pride in your heritage, but also acknowledging that sometimes people who, who are from immigrant backgrounds have have that kind of complicated history with the country of origin um, and with Australia as well. Mm. And I think that the medium is perfect for acknowledging the complexity and the many threads, if you want to take that part, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, that sort of are woven in together. Yeah. Um, who would you say that your work is for? I make it generally for like a general audience. I think with art, you should be able to, people who aren't necessarily in the art world, I think should be able to just look at art and interact with it. But I think it's also for, well, it's partly for myself uh, to to use it to sort of process the difficult emotions and to express myself. But also um, I think if people can relate to it or to... Um, gain something from it in that way like for instance uh, some of the works I've made about mental health um, and I've also in the past I've made work about um, gynecological health because I've had some issues with that in the past as well and I know certain people who had similar problems might um, interact with me on Instagram and say this makes me feel better like I feel seen or I feel heard and like I don't feel alone and I've always thought even if it's just one person who's seen it and felt a little bit better that really makes it worth it for me um so it's partly about advocating for uh people who are going through similar struggle struggles and also like educating people who who don't know about these things and uh wanting to bring it into the light and um get people thinking about it who might not have already known or um thought about that um so yeah that's really good that you can both be acknowledging your personal experiences and advocating on a broader scale. That's that's a lot to be doing oh, <laughs> across <thank> your you. <laughs> practice. <laughs> um, 
You've mentioned that people who have shared some of the experiences you touch on in your work um, have reached out to you and said that they felt seen. The work that you make about your experiences as a mixed race person, do you find that people of colour reach out to you with similar sentiments? Um, I have had some people um, say, oh, that is, that's just, it's so relatable. Um, and some people, yeah, have, have gone, yeah, no, I, I can definitely relate to this. And But I think it's been interesting uh, hearing people who, who've never kind of had to experience that kind of, that kind of questioning and that kind of curiosity. Some of them are very, they find it jarring and they find it difficult to deal with. Like they'll, they'll say, oh man, that's so racist and it's just so rude. And I was like, well, like I, to me, it's actually really quite an everyday thing I have to, every time I meet someone new, there is that chance that they will. And I actually started saying to people, if, you, if they get to know me for a bit and then they ask me afterwards instead of it being the very first thing they say, I say, oh, you get points for not asking straight away. Um, but if they, um, yeah, it's something that I just, it's it's just something that I have had to deal with probably for my whole life. And um, so for me, it's, yeah, I, I was really interested in that kind of perspective to hear people find people who find it really jarring and for me going oh this it's really quite on the really the very milder end yeah so so I think that was really interesting um but yeah as if I speak about it with other people who are like people of color um there's that we do talk about that surface level of being like oh yes being asked where you're from but then there's also a lot of like deeper feelings behind that as well that they share um, about how they feel about being being an Australian and having having like a migrant background or um, having the appearance of having a migrant background and that, that kind of thing uh, and how we're perceived. Yeah, so it's been really interesting hearing about the, um, the reaction to the work. It's been really great. I've really enjoyed seeing people's feedback. So, yeah. mm, and those are some diverse reactions and conversations, so that's really fantastic. And could you give us the exhibition details again? Uh, yep. Uh, the show is called uh, Mixed Race Female. It's in uh, Nexus Arts, which is up on North Terrace. And it's open until the 17th of September. Thanks so much, Makita. And that concludes our first ever Sala audio tour. Thanks for following along.